And uh, just a little bit after 11 o'clock, you are listening to KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. My name is Mike Hagan. This is Radio Orbit. I'll be back with you all in just a few minutes. What the hell am I fighting for?
There you go. Welcome to the program, everybody. Good evening. Good morning. Good day. Whoever you are, wherever and whenever you might be listening, it's Radio Orbit, where we investigate the cutting edges in science and technology and nature and art and music and medicine. Sometimes strange and unusual, always interesting, usually pretty cool. You're listening to it here. It's Monday, 24th of August, 2019. Hope things are good for you and you're enjoying the night. It is a warm one. Summer Monday night here in Missouri. Hope you're comfy and ready to cuddle up and listen to another Radio Orbit show. Take a look outside, though, and gaze up at the heavens, though, wherever you might be. Adjust that attitude properly and uh, get ready for the program. I do it whenever I can. Good for the heart. Regardless, nice to be with you on this summer night. Glad you joined me. We'll take care of our thank yous here and then uh, on to the show, okay? All right. Let's say a big thank you to the wonderful people that keep this radio station rocking and rolling on the air and off 24-7, 365. They're just doing it here. KOPN, staff and crew, truly spectacular group of humans. They do it up here at the Mighty Fine 89. On Mondays, Woody gets it rolling with traditional classic country and Ameripolitan music from 3 to 6 p.m. with the Real Deal Country Show. Tech radio guys take over at 6 until 7. Kelvin. Jamming as usual on jazz plus blues equals who knows what. And just concluding, New Wave Radio Theater. Man, great choice from uh, the man himself, Kelvin, tonight on New Wave Radio Theater. Amazing radio documentary on William Burroughs. William S. Burroughs narrated by, by Iggy Pop. If you missed that, check that one out in the archives. It's available uh, online, but uh, great find for New Wave Radio Theater tonight. Anyway, wonderful stuff, good music, good talk, good news. 89.5 on the dial and streaming all around this crazy planet at www.kopn.org. It's your imagination station, KOPN Columbia. And, uh, yeah, big thanks to all of you for listening, participating. I appreciate the feedback, email, Twitter, Instagram, etc. We'll uh, keep it going. Everyone else, keep it coming to me, okay? I love hearing from you. Always free to... Uh, hear what you got to say. Please feel comfortable messaging me, whether it's a potential guest or a topic you might have in mind or a musical artist, or maybe you're an artist yourself and want to share something with me. Art, music, or poetry, visual art, maybe I should say. Anyway, uh, last week we had the second segment of Rabbit Hole Navigation with Jonathan Zapp. Another great talk with John last week. I hope you heard it. Just a uh, can't say how much I enjoy the conversations I have with Jonathan Zapp. I've had many of them over many years, and they always they always uh, inspire me, and they never fail to uh, interest me and uh, and give me hope in a sense. So, anyway, Jonathan Zapp on the web at Zapp Oracle Z A P O R A C L E ZappOracle dot com. He has a YouTube page of the same name, <clears throat> Zap Oracle. Anyway, and he's just a super cool and intelligent and thoughtful and uh, just a wonderful, wonderful man. So anyway, Jonathan Zap last week and the week before, uh, if you missed the show on the web and available in the archives at the website at MikeHagan.com, archives for the show, archives for the music, 
however, the best way is probably to uh, subscribe to the podcast. I'm not always the quickest when it comes to updating the website archives lately, but the podcast is up to snuff. So you can check that out at MikeHagan.com and click on that thing that says podcast or whatever. All right. Okay. Uh, you might also get on the web and check out the forum. If you go to my website, there's a uh, just a little menu bar on the left-hand side there. And if you click on the button that says Radio Orbit Forum, you can see what's happening over there. There's 325 people or so and a relatively small group of people, but uh, sharing information and uh, debating, criticizing, uh, all in a reasonably civil fashion. But... Uh, you can join them and me, and there's also a chat room there. You can post questions directly to me during the program if I am paying attention enough to go over there and see what's happening. But anyway, um, yeah, check it out, all right? MikeHagan.com and click over to the forum. All right, tonight, a couple of recorded pieces from the web that were recently released, um, well, depending on what you consider recent, but the first one is a scary talk from Dr. John Sotos. Dr. Sotos is the chief medical officer for Intel Corporation. Yes, Intel Corporation has a chief medical officer. Anyway, this was delivered at the DEFCON 25 conference in late 2017, so going on three years, but uh, extremely relevant to uh, the current events and current conversations of the day. And then we'll hear an even more frightening tale from filmmaker John Paul Rice on, I'll just call it the ugly side of Hollywood, and it's really ugly, folks. And this guy's a freaking badass, and he's got guts, and I hope to get him on the show in the future. In fact, I'd like to get John Sotos here as well. So anyway, we're going to do that in a few minutes And if you want to get a leg up, check out the website once again at www.mikehagan.com or go on over to the forum where all this stuff is posted. I'll try to do space weather and some news as well. We'll see how it goes. And uh, yeah, looking forward to it. For the tunes tonight, the psychedelic bluegrass sounds of the Mighty Pines. I had the pleasure of seeing them last Saturday night at Rose Music Hall out in the park. First live show I've seen in quite some time. It was fantastic, and I was thrilled to be able to enjoy uh, the Mighty Pines with some friends in a outdoor uh, safe environment. And I appreciate the lengths that the people that run Rose Music Hall are going to, uh, to make that happen. They've gone out of their way to keep bringing live music to us during an extremely difficult and uh, uh, time with a lot of uncertainty. And anyway, I'm glad that I was able to be there on Saturday and I'm glad that they're doing it. So there's a tip of the hat to Mike Nolan and the gang from the Blue Note and, uh, and Rose Music Hall. All right. Anyway, the Mighty Pines last Saturday. Yeah. At Rose Music Hall out in the park. Fantastic. And I'm going to feature them tonight. Okay. We started the show off with a tune that was called Thoughts Come Rushing. And we're going to keep it going here with one from their most recent album released in 2020, not long ago. I'll tell you more about that later, but this is the first track on that album. It's called 
late last night. Back with you in a few minutes. It's Mike, and you're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM, streaming on the web at kopn.org. It's called Late Last Night. That's the title track from the Mighty Pines' most recent release called Late Last Night. We'll hear more from the Mighty Pines throughout the program tonight. And you'll listen to it here on Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. My name is Mike Hagan. Pleasure to be with you all tonight. I was going to uh, start off with a piece from DEFCON 25, uh, the conference, um, with John Sotos on genetic, uh, genetic diseases uh, and uh, a guide to digital hacks of the human genome. 
and I am going to play that, but I thought that, uh, pardon me, this would also be appropriate as sort of a preface for it. This is a very interesting piece from Dr. John Calhoun from 1960. And I'll tell you more about Calhoun in a little bit, but I just want to get to this uh, because I'm going to try to get this and Dr. John Sotosin before the top of the hour. But anyway, you're going to hear the audio from a video, which is uh, sort of a um, uh, overview synopsis of what was called the Mouse Utopia Experiment, uh, something that uh, Dr. John Calhoun did uh, experimentally in the laboratory back in the late 1950s. And uh, again, I believe it's relevant to the conversation today. I'll be back with you all in just a few minutes. Check this out. It's Mike, Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia. The work of Dr. John Calhoun at the National Institute of Health in Washington, D.C. has attempted to answer this question. In a unique experiment that took years to complete, Dr. Calhoun used white mice to study population growth and its effects on individual behavior. In addition to his renowned research papers, he has recorded some of these observations on film. In this 16-cell mouse habitat, utopian conditions of nutrition, comfort, and housing were provided for a potential population of over 3,000 mice. Yet, in spite of ideal conditions, the mouse population met with catastrophe. Individuals were kept track of by color markings on their fur. Factors which normally control population growth, such as predation by owls or cats, were eliminated. Transmissible disease was also reduced. In effect, the mouse universe simulated the present situation of a continually expanding population of humans. To see how Dr. Calhoun's mouse universe grew, we'll use the familiar population graph again. Within the first 100 days, the mice went through the period Dr. Calhoun called strive. This was a period of adjustment Territories were established, and nests were made. The next period lasted about 250 days. The population of the mice doubled every 60 days. This was called the exploit period. The use of resources became unequal. Although each living unit was identical in structure and opportunities, more food and water was consumed in some areas. As the population increased, most mice associated eating and drinking with the presence of others, and crowding developed in certain units. The third period, consisting of 300 days, found the population of mice leveling off. This was called the equilibrium period. Dr. Calhoun noticed that the newer generations of young were inhibited, since most space was already socially defined. At this time, some unusual behavior became noticeable. Violence became prevalent. 
excess males strived for acceptance, were rejected, and withdrew. Huddling together, they would exhibit brief flurries of violence among themselves. The effects of violence became increasingly visible. Certain individuals became targets of repeated attack. These individuals would have badly chewed and scarred tails. Other young mice growing into adulthood exhibited an even different type of behavior. Dr. Calhoun called these individuals the beautiful ones. Their time was devoted solely to grooming, eating, and sleeping. They never involved themselves with others, engaged in sex, nor would they fight. All appeared as a beautiful exhibit of the species, with keen alert eyes and a healthy, well-kept body. These mice, however, could not cope with unusual stimuli. Though they looked inquisitive, they were, in fact, very stupid. Dr. Calhoun called the last period the die phase, leading the population into extinction. Although the mouse utopia could house 3,000, the population began to decline at 2,200. In the shift from the equilibrium to the die phase, each animal became less aware of associates, despite all animals being pushed closer together. Dr. Calhoun concluded, that the mice could not effectively deal with the repeated contact of so many individuals. The evidence of violence increased to the point where most individuals had had their tails bitten to some degree. Eventually, the entire mouse population perished. Dr. Calhoun's experiment is a classic example of a typical population and its growth when left unchecked. Research in this area continues under his supervision. Currently, Dr. James Hill has taken the basics of the Calhoun experiment to study social behavior even more closely. In his experiment, rats are used instead of mice. Healthy individuals are selected to start the population. The rats are anesthetized so that Dr. Hill can perform a minor operation necessary to the success of his experiments. A small electromagnetic encapsulated device is implanted into every rat. This small unit enables sensing devices to keep track of the movement and position of each individual in the population. After surgery, the rats are introduced to their new multi-leveled home, all at the same time. The rats immediately begin to explore their new environment prior to organizing territories and nesting. Dr. Hill will trace how individuals move about in crowded situations. This movement is followed by tubular sensing devices. Every time a rat enters or passes through a tube, the unit detects and registers its presence. This constant movement is monitored by computer. Nesting activity is also studied. Dr. Hill has observed that the larger the population, the less care a mother gives to her nest and young. 
the same type of individuals that resulted in the mouse utopia are also emerging in the rat population. There are aggressives, asocials, and outcasts. Though these studies use animals, the findings about population growth and individual behavior are being closely compared to our own human population. Like all populations that have existed on this planet, many researchers believe that the human race has reached a crucial point in the exploit phase, a point where important decisions must be made and careful planning implemented if we are to survive. The study of plant and animal populations helps us to make decisions about the future of our human population so that we may maintain our own balance with nature. All right, a little bit there about the work of Dr. John Calhoun and the mouse utopia experiments of the late 1950s. Now we're going to fast forward to 2017 and the DEFCON 25 conference. A talk by John Sotos, Dr. John Sotos, who is the worldwide medical director at Intel. He was trained as a cardiologist, actually a transplant cardiologist, but his career has largely concentrated on the interfaces of medicine with machinery, medicine and computers. Uh, he's also sort of a historian. And uh, anyway, he has a degree in, in computer science uh, and artificial intelligence from Stanford and he's done a whole bunch of different things. He's written a number of books. His MD was from Johns Hopkins, and he did his clinical training there as well. Anyway, a very interesting guy and a very well-pedigreed uh, fella. For 30 years, he's also been a flight surgeon, actually, for the, Air, uh, for the Air National Guard. So somebody who I think is worth listening to. And uh, check this out from October of 2017. And see if you can connect that to John Calhoun, uh, who we just heard, or at least we heard about the work of John Calhoun uh, back in the late 1950s. And by the way, uh, that little discussed study by John Calhoun on the effects of population density on mice behavior is one of the bases for modern day eugenics and is at the heart of the rationale for things like uh, the UN Agenda 21, which I think now is morphing into Agenda 2030 and uh, ID 2020 and all of these, all of these globalist plots. <laughs> so anyway, it should scare the fuck out of you. And here's another one from a couple years ago, and I hope you can see the connection. Our next speaker is Chief Medical Officer for the Intel Corporation. You might have heard of them. Um, and I was, I was surprised that Intel had a Chief Medical Officer. And I am personally really excited to hear what uh, Dr. John is going to share with us. So please join me in welcoming, welcoming to, the, uh, to the DEF CON stage Dr. John Sotos. 
Thanks, I will. Thank you very much. Did somebody say break? I'm a cardiologist. I'm not going to destroy brain cells. It's against my professional ethics. So uh, it's an honor to be here today. Um, I hope you get something out of the talk, at least something to think about. But first, I, of course, I have to start with disclaimers. What I'm going to talk is not necessarily the official position of Intel or of the Department of Defense. I've got a Department of Defense affiliation too, which I'll go over. So anyway, with that, let's get going. I'm going to use my um, pointer over on this side. I hope everybody uh, okay. Well, here we go. So first, uh, let's go back to 1978 when I was a college student uh, in about this part of the country. <clears throat> and um, I got sick, really sick. I was sick as crap. I was laying in bed, shivering, <clears throat> excuse me. My teeth were actually chattering and every muscle in my body hurt. It wasn't just me, it was everybody it seemed like. Well, almost, the professors didn't get sick, just the students. And it wasn't just my college. At the Air Force Academy, 77% of the recruits got sick, the cadets, sorry. It wasn't until 30 years later I found out what had happened. In 1918, that's when the story starts, a virus got from a bird into humans and that killed about 1% of the entire world's population in 1918. And that virus and its descendants stayed circulating in the population for another 40 years or so. And you know how there's an influenza every winter and there's a different shot you get every winter. The virus changes little by little. So over the next 40 years, that virus hung around. And then in 1957, it went away. It was replaced by another influenza virus, an H2 virus. And then in 1968, another virus replaced that. So far, all is normal. In 1977 though, H1 came back. And in fact, it just wasn't a random H1. It was almost exactly identical to the H1 from 1948. And that's why the professors didn't get sick. The professors had all gotten sick in 1948 because they were older. It was only the students who had never seen this virus that got sick in 1977. So how did that happen? Because these viruses change. You can't get a 30-year span in time when, a vi when an influenza virus doesn't change. And so the common consensus is the reemergence of this virus in 1977 is unexplained and probably represents reintroduction to humans from a laboratory source. What does that mean? It means something got out of a lab. It got out of a lab and it came halfway across the world and it got me. This is where this virus first appeared in the wild, somewhere in Northeast Asia. We don't know if it was the Soviet Union or China. But it went worldwide and it didn't affect the old and the infirm, it infected the healthiest people, the college students. So you're affected by this too because ever since then, the descendants of this H1 virus have stuck around and this H3 virus has stuck around too. So every year when you get your flu shot, and I hope you do, you're getting immunized against something like this and something like this. So that's the one of the motivations for this talk. Stuff that happens in labs can have worldwide reach. And we know that, micro, that engineering of microorganisms is happening every day today in laboratories. 
And the question is, what is the potential when malicious engineering of organisms starts? And how do we defend against it? And I would claim that only massive preemptive development of counterhacking biotechnologies can save the world, because I think the threat is that grave. So who am I? As I mentioned, I'm a cardiologist who doesn't drink much. I work for Intel. Uh, I've been in the Air National Guard for 30 years, uh, mostly as a rescue flight surgeon. I've been programming since 1970. Uh, I don't get to do much of it at Intel, unfortunately. That was my first computer that I ever programmed there. And am I a hacker? Do I deserve to be here? Well, I wouldn't presume on the computer side, but I have an interest in what you might call diagnostic hacking, hacking the diagnostic process. And I wrote a book on that, and I was a professor for a long time. But uh, you probably know me, if at all, for my work on House for six years where I was a consultant and also on uh, Torchwood Miracle Day and um, I'll be consulting for a new show this fall on ABC called The Good Doctor. So tune in Monday nights. <laughs> so today I want to talk about uh, epidemics and bioweapons, talk about digital biology, uh, show how exploits, where they'll come from, and then uh, conclude with a few uh, reflections. So uh, bioweapons are actually amazingly effective and they date from ancient times. The Hippocratic Oath that all us physicians take, that started because it was a doctor who told his military commander how to poison a village and uh, overrun it. So uh, in the Middle Ages, the Black Plague killed about 25% of Europe's population. Smallpox killed about 95% of the Aztecs. That's why nobody in this room knows any Aztecs. Influenza, as I mentioned, killed 1% uh, of the world's population and it went everywhere. There are only two places on earth that didn't go. And even today, we have an epidemic of small-headed babies. I mean, who would have thought such a thing is possible? It turns out the Zika virus can do that. And uh, no less than Bill Gates says, of all the things that could kill more than 10 million people around the world, the most likely is an epidemic so uh, we haven't even started to see unnatural epidemics, just the natural epidemics. So this I saw an exhibit in uh, Oxford, England. This is from a book published in 1625 and um, when the Black Plague came through. And so here you have obviously death and the population of the town. We fly. They try to get out of the town. You can see soldiers stop them. But even though they try to flee, death follows them and then we die and here are the coffins. So that's what we're up against. And the effect of bioweapons can be long lasting. Um, the Brits tested some anthrax in World War II and the island where they tested it was uninhabitable for 50 years. Malaria has affected the evolution of multiple human genes. I've got a gene that uh, I have only because uh, my ancestors survived malaria and they were good at it. And about 8% of your genome started out in viruses. So the problem, or the reason you haven't heard much about bioweapons when we talk about warfare is they've been held back by a pretty severe limitation, which is the potential for blowback. If I use a bioweapon on some adversary across a border, uh, that epidemic is probably going to spread back and get me too. So that doesn't make it a great weapon. There are international treaties that outlaw bioweapons, but you know, treaties are easily broken. So let's get now into um, the exploits and, and how they might work and how to think about them. The first thing to realize is what's called the central dogma of biology. You start with DNA and you make RNA out of that and then you make a protein. 
and the proteins are the real workhorses of, of life. They do various jobs. Now, if you want to make a medicine today, you're usually making a medicine that attacks the protein. And for, you know, just convenience, we can call that analog therapy. Uh, you know, you de design a chemical that fits into the protein or does something to it. And this is pretty difficult and it's imprecise. There's lots of cross-reactivities across different proteins and that makes it hard to design safe and effective new medications. It's why drug companies spend so much money developing drugs because it's so difficult. So tomorrow, though, I think we're going to see digital medicines and we're starting to see a few. Remember, RNA and DNA are digital programs. They're written not in binary but in a quaternary code, A-C-T-G-A. Um, and they're amenable to digital manipulation which means you can reprogram them. And so this is going to allow an algorithmic or a digital design of medications. And the cancer moonshot, which uh, Vice President Biden, uh, of course, pushed, is going to really uh, drive these new technologies to manipulate DNA because cancer really is a disease of DNA. And if we get a good cancer uh, mechanism or uh, uh, mechanism to combat cancer going uh, using this route, it's going to be exquisitely specific because cancer cells are not that different from normal cells. Okay, and just. Some of the um, catchwords you might have heard, some of these digital DNA technologies, there's something called RNA interference, which won a Nobel Prize in 2006. You've probably heard about CRISPR-Cas9, and uh, for sure there will be a Nobel Prize for that someday. There are things called gene drives. Um, spreading these um, DNA programs can be done through measles virus, let's say. It's unbelievably contagious. Um, and even nano diamonds can be used to get uh, viruses or uh, DNA into you. So what you can do with this sort of uh, digital approach to DNA and RNA is you can do things like program in an if-then statement. And this has already happened. Uh, in fact, somebody programmed a five-part predicate in here for the if statement. So far, nobody I don't think is working too hard on the or is, is uh, succeeded in the deploy payload part but the if part is, is very uh, well along the road. And this sort of construct is going to be the key to biohacking. So um, I'm from Intel. We talk a lot about Moore's Law but uh, biotechnology is blowing Moore's Law out of the water. Uh, this graph here shows how much it costs to sequence a human genome going back to, I guess that's about 2000, I can't read it. Uh, and this uh, line, this straight line is Moore's Law and this is the cost of genome sequencing and you can see it is dropping way faster than Moore's Law. So in 10 years we might be talking about a $10 genome sequence. And uh, you know, these sort of uh, if-then statements are going to continue to um, get better and better. And so this whole talk was prompted by the question, with this kind of exponential increase in biotechnology, with new things like CRISPR, where is biotechnology going to be in five years or 15 years? And it's kind of scary because defensive technology always lags offensive technology. So, um, you know, the cancer moonshot I would propose is dual use, just like nuclear weapons and nuclear power are two sides of the same coin. The ideal cancer treatment someday is going to be the doctor's going to biopsy your tumor, get a sample, send it down to the lab. The lab will figure out the genetic syndrome or the signature of your exact cancer tumor. Then somebody will build a virus that using that if-then statement 
only targets the cancer cells in you. They'll put that virus inside you. You'll feel like you have a cold for a few days and then that virus will go to work and, and that's because the virus is going to work destroying your cancer and then you'll wake up cancer free. That's a pretty good deal. We all want that to happen. But notice this exquisite targeting overcomes that big drawback against bioweapons. So the new technology is going to allow incredibly targeted bioweapons. So think about three different axes. Who might you target? A specific tissue? That's what cancer does, if that, that cancer therapy. And if you wanted to edit an embryo, uh, as is just starting now, uh, that will certainly come along too. But you could also target a family, like the royal family. You could target a whole group of people. You could target an entire species. So that's the who. Then there's the what. You know, if you're doing cures, that's great. But you know, you might be making life inconvenient for somebody. You might be giving them a disease or you might be killing them. And then there's the when. And uh, there's a very important factor here I'll talk about later too. So if you were going to cause death in an individual, well, we call that assassination or murder. If you were going to cause death in an identifiable group of people, we'd call that genocide. And you might say, well, why would we ever want to kill off an entire species if that species is the malaria parasite or if it's the mosquito that carries Zika virus or yellow fever? You'd want to kill those off too. So certainly this part of the graph is uh, in the sights of scientists working today. And so this talk is about what happens in this part of the graph. The technology is inevitable. Let's remember that. Everybody wants that cure for cancer. And so they're going to be, you know, I think thousands of people down in the basement of hospitals doing these viral manipulations, this genetic program, and that's a lot of power to put into those people. So what could happen? Um, let's talk about that. So first, um, let's talk about that what axis, the damage that people can do. So I'm going to use genetic diseases as a guidebook for exploits. And here I define disease as any kind of abnormal function in your body. So an exploit is anything that includes a genetic, that induces a genetic disease. So here's an example. Here's a rare genetic disease called xeroderma pigmentosum. And this uh, little girl has it. And it's a defect of DNA repair that arises from a variant in the XPA gene, one of the 25,000 genes that you have in your body. And these people are intolerant of sunlight. Every time sunlight hits your skin, it damages DNA. But your body repairs it. These people don't have that repair capability. So when they go out in the sun, they will blister after a few minutes. Okay, now if you're hackers and you could deploy something like this worldwide, you know, why might you want to do it? Think about that for a few minutes and, and I'll come back and, and give you a suggestion. So there's lots of potential in our human genomes to cause this kind of problem. This is um, my mentor at, at Johns Hopkins. He was a terrific guy. And back in the 1960s, he started collecting every inherited trait that the profession of medicine could identify in humans. And uh, this is my copy of his book uh, in 1990. That's the 1990 version. And if you've read Moby Dick, you know, you can see that it's way bigger than Moby Dick. And that was in 1990. And since then, the book got so big they couldn't publish it in hard copy anymore. And this only goes up to 2004. 
And, uh, you know, I think they just gave up counting at that point. So we know a lot about what happens in people's bodies. So within this book, this big book of uh, genetic um, um, susceptibilities in human beings, there's a lot of stuff. And in fact, there's some stuff worse than dying. And, and I call that hell. And, and you don't want to know what that is, what could happen. So the question is really what happens in these two places. So let's give some examples. So let's say you were a passionate animal rights person and you didn't want people eating animals. You might be a, a passionate vegetarian as well. Well, there is a disease called ornithine transcarbamylase deficiency, which is in that big book, and it arises from a variant in the OTC gene. So if you could spread, if you could mess up everybody's OTC gene across the world, all of a sudden, almost nobody in the world could eat meat. That's something that as an extreme vegetarian, you might uh, want to have happen. Let's say you believed in sexual chastity and you really wanted to punish people who were a little profligate. You could make everybody in the world hypersusceptible to gonorrhea by messing with the C5 or the C6, 7, 8, or 9 genes. It caused lots of other problems, but you could, you could make people really susceptible to gonorrhea. Let's say I didn't want anybody at DEF CON to do a shot and I wanted to make them intolerant to alcohol. I could screw with their ALDH2 gene. Or to go back to xeroderma pigmentosum, if I wanted all women to be veiled when they went outside, I could design something that would mess up the XPA gene only in women. Or if I wanted uh, to um, blur the, some of the distinctions between races, I could um, distribute genes or uh, vectors that would cause skin color to change. If I'm a pharmaceutical company uh, and I have a drug that treats some genetic illness, how great would it be if everybody in the world had that genetic illness? That would do wonders for sales. And let's say um, you were once turned down for the astronaut program because you were colorblind. I don't know who that might be, but you're looking at him. And, um, <laughs> Let's say you wanted everybody in the world to be colorblind, then they couldn't turn you down. So there's more. <clears throat> Let's say I just don't want to um, hurt people, but I want to target national economies. I have a, a uh, an enemy, an adversary, and I know that it would bankrupt their economy to take care of epidemic expensive diseases. So there are ways that I could give people cancer, Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's disease, cystic fibrosis. I could give everybody pain all the time or I could make them insensitive to pain, which trust me uh, causes a lot of problems. I could immunocompromise people or I could accelerate aging. Um, <clears throat> let's say I just wanted to impair uh, do things to impair workers. I could give everybody narcolepsy. Um, the face blindness syndrome is probably genetically uh, mediated. No one's discovered the gene yet. Or if I wanted to give a whole generation of children learning disabilities so um, some country couldn't compete against me, I could do that. Let's say I just objected to, to a lifestyle. Um, you know, I could make everybody deaf or blind. And look at this, there are 540 genes that, goes into our, that go into our hearing process and 600 genes that go into vision. Could make everybody night blind, interfere with taste and smell and destroy uh, a big industry right from that. 
There are genetically uh, mediated diseases that make you die from excitement. These are cardiology diseases, actually. And then there are diseases of physical fragility. Okay, we've got a few more. Uh, epidemic micropenis. Um, <laughs> epidemic erectile dysfunction. Or you could make everybody uh, hyperlibidinous. You could, I think, I couldn't quite find the gene, but I'm sure this is genetically determined somehow. Uh, you could fix it so a nation just became a nation of sons or a nation of daughters. Um, there were reports that uh, certain organizations uh, were looking to try and change the sexual preference of their adversaries and uh, you could sterilize an entire population. Uh, let's say I just wanted to mess with some politicians and you know I could make somebody go totally bald or I could give them a really bad fishy odor and that is actually an incredibly tough disease to have. It's caused by this TMAU gene because there's no treatment for it and it's impossible to disguise the odor and those people have a very difficult time socially. Uh, I could give somebody intractable diarrhea, cause a massive weight gain, or um, you know, in some forms of Tourette syndrome, which is mediated by this gene, people uh, involuntarily uh, emit obscenities. So that would be uh, interesting in a politician. I put this in before uh, Mr. Scaramucci started his work, so we might have to cross it off the list. Okay, that's the what. Um, we talked a little bit about the population. Um, I would recommend keeping your genome secret. Um, so, you know, we talked about the royal family and, you know, you could get just uh, DNA from one member of the royal family and, and you could then target the whole family. Um, you know, this word race is uh, very squishy, but if you use it to mean any observable physical characteristic defines a race, then, um, you know, it, it becomes possible to think about it in a sort of rigorous way. So, for instance, um, there's a gene called EDAR and 87% of Asians have that. And um, you can exclude Asian descent in nearly 100% of Europeans and Africans by looking at this one gene. So if you wanted to do uh, racial elimination, um, EDAR is a good place to start if this is your target. So obviously this is very dangerous if used by hate groups. And then there are easy ways to identify uh, genetic males and genetic females, which of course is genetic. Um, you know, identifying ethnic groups is a little tougher. Uh, you know, Tay-Sachs disease tends to run in um, the Ashkenazi Jewish group, but even there it, it's not very good, uh, quote-unquote, if uh, you're using it to target them. So that may be sort of a, a blessing, you know, interbreeding uh, is, is helpful. Um, and we talked about species, uh, you know, if you're a dog person and you want to wipe out cats, you can do that or vice versa. Uh, you could wipe out uh, food sources and, you know, if you um, wanted to kill a wine crop, uh, if you're from Napa and you wanted to kill the French wine industry, uh, you might be able to do that. So let's talk about time. Um, you know, I think it's possible to build binary weapons so you insert one thing but the bad thing doesn't happen until a second agent is exposed. But the really interesting thing about time is, yeah, I could do something to everybody who's living here and make some of you sick or whatever, but if we can get that gene change into the cells that make sperm and ova, then it's in human beings um, in perpetuity until somehow they all get fixed. 
Um, so this is just the RNA and the DNA part. You know, there's a whole other field called epigenetics, and epigenetics is way the environment um, signals in the environment are transmitted to your genome. So, for example, if you move to Denver, where the air is thin, where there's not much oxygen, somehow that signal has to get from the oxygen in the air into your genome so that you can make more red blood cells. So there are going to be, I think, a whole host of epigenetics uh, exploits that uh, I really haven't started to think about too much. Um, and then uh, targeting based on the microbiome uh, would also be uh, possible. So uh, to summarize, you know, a lot of this is possible now, some of the, these engineering um, angles, but it's very difficult. And so not many people can do it. But um, with the progress that we all hope the cancer moonshot will make, it's going to get easier and easier to do these kind of things. And then when it's to the point that thousands of people can do this sort of stuff, we have a real problem. So um, my first uh, statement to you is don't do this stuff. Um, there's, there's just no point in doing that. Yeah, we know it can be done. You're not showing anybody you're smart if you do this. Uh, but if you have a chance to talk about this problem with policymakers, uh, do that. Um, you know, if this group gets scared, because not much scares this group, but if this group gets scared, I think that'll get their attention. Or get involved more directly, go into bioscience yourself and uh, try and put your digital way of thinking to work and trying to build the defensive technology for this. I don't have all the answers, that's for sure, so we need a lot of help. What I would tell the policymakers to do is to, and, and this is very difficult for them, it's essentially saying you have to start working on defensive technology for an offensive technology that isn't here yet. But the goals are really quite laudatory in the sense that the first step is to figure out how to cure every infectious disease known to science. And you'd want to do that using some sort of digital technology. And that alone would create the largest amount of wealth that I think uh, the world will have ever seen when you think about how much infectious disease costs mankind and, and how much people would pay uh, not to get infected. Um, but that's only the first step um, because there are going to be unnatural infectious diseases that people will build. And so we're going to have to develop an infrastructure that will be able to detect new agents and then characterize the infection, devise a countermeasure, produce the countermeasure, produce the countermeasure in millions or billions of doses, and then distribute it across the world. And all, yeah, probably within a month or a couple weeks of the time the disease is detected, because that's how long it takes. You know, a disease that we get here could go everywhere in a couple weeks. And you know, not too long ago. Uh, infections were of a magnitude that we can hardly believe today. In 1947, New York vaccinated six million people in four weeks against smallpox. So I don't think this is necessarily impossible. I think it's harder than a moonshot. It's like a Mars shot, though. If you're interested in this and you want to get more motivated, or maybe I should say if you're not interested and you think, uh, is this guy up here talking crazy? Um, this is a novel that was published in the 1990s, and um, it is a terrific novel just on its own merits, but uh, in the introduction, the author says, uh, all the science in this novel is true except for three things, and I'm not going to tell you what they are. 
That's what the author said. So uh, read it and and have a good time and, and think about it. And then finally, thanks for sticking around today toward the end of the conference and hearing. Um, Remember that uh, as we leave the conference, we're gonna go back all over the world. So it's a pretty good thing that we're not carrying any bad bugs with us. Thank you very much. Uh, John, do I have time for questions? Where's John? Okay. Thanks. So I think one of your colleagues just tweeted that you said don't share your genome. And I'm wondering how you see reconciling that with doing the research that's needed to better understand genomic medicine and also to treat people genomically. Presumably for me to get that precise treatment, I'm going to have to share my genomic information. Yeah, if you've got uh, a genetic disorder, Um, you have approximate threat to your existence and to your life. And so there the balance would tip toward sharing the genome. So thank you for asking that. That's worth a clarification. Everything in life is a risk-benefit balance. And so I would say um, don't share your genome without reason, without good reason. Hey, um, so, so attribution is this famous problem in computer security. Like, um, when a oh. malware spreads around yeah. the world, where did it come from? Was it yeah. Russia? Was it China? You know. Yeah. Um, and so what I was wondering is, is there any current work happening in genomics that you know of um, around developing ways to uh, watermark or otherwise um, annotate these modifications so that you can determine where they came from and how? Oh, that's an interesting question. So, uh, no, I haven't heard of that. You know, um, the whole science of epidemiology uh, focuses on where did things, where did infections come from, how did they spread, and that's been very difficult over the hundreds of years that epidemiology has been a science. And even when we look in genomes, we can get some help, so, uh, but, but not, the kind, not the kind of help that you want. So, I can, if I gave you influenza, um, the match between our two viruses would be like 100% minus epsilon, some really small number. But if he got influenza from somebody in Portugal, it would still be influenza A, an H1 or whatever, but his difference between your two influenzas would be bigger. So you can do some sort, you can do tracing that way. Uh, but you can't go and say, oh, it started in, you know, the Amazon jungle or anything like that. So the question's about encoding, uh, signing modifications uh, that you put into the genome. Sure, there's lots of room in the cell. You can add a few more uh, DNA base pairs um, that, you know, somehow you would claim or something like that and, and put a signature in there. So I'm, I'm thinking a little bit about data archiving and long-term data archiving, large amounts of data. Um, one of our primary concerns is bit rot. And, and so, we, so we check that frequently and then readjust it from available sources. I'm wondering if it, it would be reasonable to think about the DNA uh, in an archiving, maybe personal archiving, sort of like backing it up where then with frequent checking, you could find something that had gone awry 
and then essentially restore it by doing it. Yeah. Do you have an identical twin? No. Too bad. Um, so, <clears throat> uh, yeah, identical twins are, are great, great for that kind of backup. Well, you know, uh, for cancer, um, you know, there, there's another way which is um, uh, cord blood. So, you know, when babies are born, they have the umbilical cord and nowadays you can snip that umbilical cord and put it in a freezer and uh, that thing is that cord, the blood in that cord is loaded with stem cells. And um, you know if you get a leukemia later, you can go back to the cord blood and you have a sample of blood there that is essentially the backup you're talking about. There are no leukemic cells in it. Um, you know that was sort of the rage a few years ago. I don't even know, technology may have passed that by, I can't say. But you know just from a, um, from a sort of IT perspective, if you put your entire genome in some digital format and put it on a hard drive or something, um, the question is how do you restore from that backup? So you know there are several trillion cells in you and that's the worst case scenario is you need to get that backup into every one of those cells. But if it was a sort of thing where you got leukemia and they were saying, hey, we can't find any non-leukemic cells in your blood to do a transplant, a bone marrow transplant on you, maybe someday in the future you could go back to that digital backup, build some cells with your correct DNA and then infuse those into you. Regarding your uh, advice to work on contrameasures, uh, Working on contrameasures means to go through the same technology because if we need to fix the, and actually it's easier to break than to fix. So the whole genetic therapy, it's a bit old and, but it's really declined because it's very, very difficult to fix stuff, to break yeah. this. Yeah, that's, that's why defensive technology tends to lag behind offensive technology. But I would say there, there's still ways you could do it. So let's say CRISPR turns out to be the former director of uh, national intelligence for the United States called CRISPR a weapon of mass destruction. So if just working on anti-CRISPR technology for instance might be a way to go. So that you know whatever program is embedded in some sort of CRISPR implementation, if you had a way to kill the CRISPR part, um, that would be potentially in some situations useful. Um, and the same, you know, but I think CRISPR might be kind of easy. Other things like RNA interference, that might be really hard to develop countermeasures for that. But that, that's what I was thinking when I made that statement. So I've noticed a recent rise in popularity of these services. Talk slower because oh, the, my apologies. the echoes. So I've noticed a recent rise in popularity of these services where say they'll send you a vial, uh, you spit in it, you send it back, they give you information on your genome. I've seen uh, a lot of uh, educational channels on YouTube encouraging people to go out and do this uh, and it seems like quite an interesting thing to do if not something, uh, information that would be good to know. However, I worry about the security of these sort of, uh, of these sort of organizations. Are they selling my data? Um, what government organizations, uh, what, would, what would your advice be for the security of these? Where do you think, uh, how do you think we could make sure that uh, our data isn't being sent out? Uh, should we discourage family members and friends from using these, that sort of thing? 
Yeah, I think it comes back to a bit of what the first questioner asked was the risk-benefit trade-off. So if you have a medical condition where you think your care could be improved if the full genome were known, okay, I could see that. But if you're trying to figure out whether you're Lithuanian or Greek or something else, you know, who cares? Um, so, <laughs> and you know, I had a friend do that and he found out that his father wasn't his father. So, you know, you really can't get great news from it. But, you know, uh, it, what I worry about as a physician is, let's say there are 5,000 diseases that are mediated by genetics. There are probably more, but let's say there are 5,000. And let's say someday you get a report back that lists your risk for all those diseases. Well, you're going to be at above average risk for 2,500 diseases, just statistically. And so if you come in to see me and I'm your doctor and you start talking about 2,500 diseases that you're at risk for, I have no time to talk to you about anything else. You know, I know that getting your blood pressure down by 10 points is going to extend your life by so many years or helping you to quit cigarette smoking is going to extend your life by 10 years. So you crowd all of that out for this information that really isn't helpful. So uh, that's, that's what I would think about. Medicine is very aggressive in the sense that, you know, if, if we have a way to decrease your risk of disease, um, we'll develop screening technologies around that. But if we don't have any way to decrease, we don't have a way to decrease your risk of rheumatoid arthritis or your risk of psoriasis or any, anything like that. So it, there's no point um, in a preventive way of, of coming, of getting tested for that and coming to talk to me about it. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So the topic has come up a couple times now that... Slower, because the echoes bother, yeah. That it's easier to crash a human than fix it. The number one problem with gene therapy that we've observed from our historical data is random insertions into the genome that lead to different errors that are actually much more catastrophic than the error you were trying to fix. So is anyone working on how you would be able to have a defensive strategy to not have that happen? Because in its current state, gene therapy is kind of like playing Russian roulette. So. Um, let's go back to that big thick book that I showed a picture of. Most of the diseases in there are single gene diseases, uh, like that xeroderma pigmentosa. That's one gene. But if you look at what humans tend to suffer from, obesity, Alzheimer's disease, atherosclerotic heart disease, you know, the common stuff, those are multiple gene diseases. And so um, it's they're almost like two different sets of targets. The single gene diseases, we understand how to find them and we understand how repair would occur theoretically. The multiple gene diseases, and I think this is what you're saying, are much more mysterious. You know, if there are 640 genes that go toward making your visual system work correctly, and that's a bad example. If there are 50 genes that are involved in um, atherosclerosis, 
you know, when you start tweaking one, it's going to have a bunch of other effects and you're not going to maybe find a big effect from any one gene. So now you're talking about diddling with multiple genes. And so that's really hard and that's going to be quite a ways in the future. Is, is that what you're asking about? Because you, you mentioned like stop codons and things like that. That's sort of the single gene disease. Yeah, it doesn't matter how many genes are involved in the disease. If you introduce something into the code that was external, so you downloaded information and it went to the wrong file mm. and it caused an error that was significantly worse than the original error, the best case was a single gene gene therapy approach the genes randomly inserted into the genome and caused leukemia in most of the patients in that population. Yeah, so that's going to be part of the safety and efficacy evaluation of any new therapeutic that comes out. So, you know, the first gene therapy efforts um, didn't work. You know, it, it, it caused harm. But lessons were learned from that and so it's getting better. So, uh, like an earlier questioner says, it's always easy to break something than to fix something. And any attempt to fix, every attempt to fix something, you know, you have to be prepared for unintended consequences. And so it's just going to be a matter of refining techniques. Your point is well taken. Uh, but medicine is, is pretty accustomed to trying to work out what the adverse effects of any therapy are. One final comment on that. Do you think it would be a bit more responsible? to target something that's not the equivalent to the source code? Um, well, that might be like the microbiome because if you screw up your microbiome in some terrible way, you can always flush it out and, load and reboot essentially by eating the feces of some other person and uh, you're good to go. That would be a much better approach. Okay, I'll put you down for the feces eating. That, that was the most scientific way I've ever seen somebody put down a question. That was amazing. Uh, closely related to the uh, last question, uh, would there be a way or is there any research going towards uh, basically locking the editing of the genetic sequence? Yeah. Turn evolution into something purely directed. That would be the, the. There would be no more natural vectors of evolution if we did that. But it yeah. would secure the, uh, the 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 whole code. Uh, I that that's a very interesting idea. I I don't think there's any work going on that. Uh, I wouldn't know how to implement that. Um, you know, there there's six uh, billion. Uh, between the two parents' uh, contributions, there are billions of base pairs. And so, you know, we have uh, the two rungs of the double helix, which uh, provides some measure of error correction in there. And it is possible to build uh, triple helices uh, using not DNA, but there's now uh, new kinds of NAs, XNA, and you can build triple helices. So you could actually. Um, increase the error correcting capabilities but then I think you've got something that's not a human at that point because um, it's just so different from us. Uh, so I have two questions, one's pretty quick. 
Um, you talked about changing some physical traits about people to target certain groups, but how complex do you think we could uh, develop that technology? Such as if someone has a birth defect where their fingers may not grow properly, do you think we would be able to correct that and then through their, uh, I guess, preteen years when their bodies are developing more, they would be able to grow proper fingers, I guess. So uh, there are a lot of people working on that. Um, you know, there are some malformations that occur not because of problems in the genetic code but because of environmental influences. So if you have an encounter with a chainsaw, you know, you could end up with a, uh, an abnormality in your anatomical structure. So, um, you know, I had a friend who um, found out that the tips of your fingers, the skin on the tips actually regenerates. And so he took this as part of his research to figure out if he could expand that regenerative cap uh, capacity beyond your fingertips to, the, to other parts of your body. He didn't win a Nobel Prize, so I guess it didn't quite work as well as, as we might hope. But there, there's a tremendous amount of work in that going on. Thank you. We got time for one more question. Okay. Sorry. Hey. Uh, ex excellent talk. Thank I just you. wanted to start by thanking you for scaring the ever-loving shit out of all of us. <laughs> um, yeah. Because frankly, that needs to happen if we're going to avoid this terrible future that you've described. CRISPR is the new kid on the block, but I think of CRISPR as like a root kit that's just really good at doing advanced things, but it's the spreading mechanism that frankly Mother Nature has been giving us for millennia that's the real problem to address. So my question is, um, are Intel or the DOD or other organizations that have the resources to tackle this developing the equivalent of biological intrusion detection systems that can sample airborne or, or human spreading epidemics through urban population centers to very quickly identify that spreading vehicle? So that's a great question. Um, there, there are sort of two mechanisms. One is the science of epidemiology which I've already talked about and of course that is limited. Uh, you know it started in the 1700s or 1800s and we still use the basic same mechanisms. Um, on the technology side, uh, the Centers for Disease Control has something called a BioWatch program, which is these, today, these big carts. Um, so the San Francisco, uh, San Francisco area hosted the Super Bowl last year and on the sidewalks in San Francisco these carts appeared and they have, you know, sort of a smokestack and they basically sniff the air and they bring the air into the business part of the cart and with today's technology it's just deposited there and a human comes by, picks up the samples, takes them back to the lab and does some PCR, some genetic analysis on it. So the CDC tried to develop a second generation of this cart and the program was not successful. And so right now it's in hold as to what to do. Um, you know, my idea is that um, when you go into an emergency room and they draw some blood from you and send it to the lab, the blood in that tube, 90% uh, of it is thrown away because it's more than they need. So why not take that blood and throw it into a big vat and once a day just sequence the crap out of all that blood that comes in and send that immense amount of data down to the CDC in Atlanta and that would give them 
really, I think, a national picture in real time of what's coming into the emergency room at a genetic level. So I, I think that would be kind of a first step on um, a new generation of biosurveillance. One, one, this is quick. Is it lupus? <laughs> it's never lupus. Yes. <laughs> All right, there you go, Dr. John Sotos, the uh, chief medical officer at Intel Corporation, talking about the digital hacking of the human genome. And that was three years ago, and sort of prophetic in its uh, timing, in my opinion. So I hope you appreciate where I was going with that. Uh, DEFCON is a hacking conference, and uh, that was DEFCON 25, which was held in uh, July, end of July, actually, 2017, in Las Vegas, of all places. All right, it's Mike, and you're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM, on the web at kopn.org and streaming there as well. My website at mikehagan.com. If you're interested in... Uh, listening to that again or checking it out in a more thorough uh, way or sharing it with other people, you can find that on the Radio Orbit forum or do a search for John Sotos, DEFCON 25. Okay? All right, let's take a break here and play a piece of music from our featured musicians of the evening. They're called the Mighty Pines. They're out of St. Louis, Missouri, and they play some cool sort of psychedelic bluegrass stuff. And this is one that is called Stranger in the City. Back with you in about four and a half minutes. It's Mike, Radio Orbit, KOPN, Columbia.
It's called Stranger in the City. More cool music from the Mighty Pines from their most recent release called Late Last Night. You're listening to it here. It's Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. My name is Mike Hagan. Good to be with you all tonight. And before we get any further, I will tell you that Amber House is a full-service getaway in historic Roachport. That's Roachport, Missouri, featuring multi-course meals from locally sourced foods and four individually designed suites, each with a fireplace and a jetted tub. Owners Dawson and Sherry look forward to personalizing each customer's day. Pictures and more can be found at the Amber House Facebook page or at amberhousebb.com. Cool place there in Roachport, Amber House Bed and Breakfast. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia 89.5 FM. That's right. Now, uh, we heard from Dr. John Sotos, the chief medical officer for Intel Corporation, very bright man, talking to us about some very scary stuff. Um, And that was three years ago before this COVID nightmare. And I, well, I won't hesitate to say that that stuff is related clearly as well uh the uh the talk that we heard right before that from oh gosh uh john calhoun dr john calhoun about 70 years in between those two those two pieces but both directly related population control eugenics designer viruses 
etc., etc., etc. Okay, let's do a quick space weather here. I think we got some time before we'll get to another interesting uh, topic that we'll share in just a little bit here. Okay, so um, I talk a lot about asteroids on this program during space weather, typically, and uh, many news sources are reporting in the last few days the approach of asteroid 2018 VP1, which they're saying might hit the Earth on November 2nd. And yes, according to NASA, there is a significant chance, 0.4%, if you call that significant, that means there's a 99.6% chance that it won't impact. But anyway, they'll, uh, they'll call that a significant chance, 0.4% chance of impact. But even if that is the case, there's really no need to fear. The asteroid is quite small, uh, about two meters at its longest point. And even if it did, uh, quote unquote, hit the Earth, the great majority of this six foot, seven foot diameter rock would disintegrate in the atmosphere. And if anything, it might produce a nice light show. Certainly not anything approaching Armageddon. So you don't have to worry about that. If the election gets stopped, it's going to be from something other than that asteroid. Who knows what might happen between now and then. I'm extremely concerned about uh, the geopolitical environment for the next three months. Four months, I guess. Three, actually, right? Less than three now for the for the uh, 2020 elections. Wow. Okay. Um, I'll mention something that happened over one of the tropical storms. There are three big tropical storms that are kind of churning their way around right now. Uh, one uh, is called Laura. And last weekend, tropical storm Laura passed by Puerto Rico. And as it was getting close to the island, the storm uh, produced a couple of phenomenon that are called gigantic jets. And again, not, not a very creative name, but I guess it's more of a just a uh, descriptive uh, way to say what's happening here. Um, anyway, there's a man named Frankie Lucina who uh, recorded these lightning bolt type of, of things, these gigantic jets um, uh, over the town of Cabo Rojo, uh, in Puerto Rico. But anyway, gigantic jets are related to sprites. I've talked about that before on space weather, but they're much bigger and they come out of the tops of thunderstorms and can reach all the way up to the top edges of the atmosphere and almost out into space. And there is a term called space lightning that is sometimes associated with gigantic jets and they are certainly a sign of very intense electromagnetic activity in the storm and there are a number of different types of these uh, gigantic jets and this uh, was a type 2 event which is quite rare and this investigator says this appears to be a rare type 2 gigantic jet event 
Gigantic jets come in three types. Type 2 events start out as blue jets, then transform into gigantic jets. The metamorphosis is not well understood. Out of the more than 40 gigantic jets I've captured over the years in the Caribbean, Lucina says, only three of them might be type 2s. So, very rare indeed. The same gentleman captured sprites and elves dancing around this tropical storm. And you can see some video of that at spaceweather.com where I gather a lot of this information. And, yeah, uh, a lot of this is misunderstood or not well understood. The relationship between electromagnetics and storms and earthquakes. And there are decent arguments that... uh, uh, connected to the solar activity. We've talked before about the electromagnetic relationship between the Earth and the Sun, and it's extremely complex and very cool. We just don't understand a whole lot about it yet. So anyway, tropical storms doing some wild stuff up there in the electromagnetic spectrum as well. Okay, a little bit more about what's happening this week in the skies above our heads. Um, I won't talk too much about Monday. Let's talk about Tuesday because we are now into Tuesday. It's 12.30, by the way, on August 25th, 2020. You're listening to KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. My name is Mike Hagan, and this is Radio Orbit. We do this every Monday night from 11 until 2, sometimes 1.30. We've got some weird stuff going on with regard to scheduling here at the station because of the COVID pandemic, which we are all uh, dealing with. And sometimes I leave a half an hour Uh, before. In fact, most weeks I leave a half an hour before I normally would. So tonight we'll go another hour. We'll be going until 1.30 this morning. And um, yeah, Tuesday, August 25th, first quarter of the moon um, occurs tomorrow at about 2 p.m. Eastern time. That's about one o'clock here in mid-Missouri. Let's look at sunrise and stuff like that. I guess sunrise is about 6.20 in the morning and uh, sets at 7.42 p.m. The moon will look about half full, does tonight. Very nice out there. And it's a great time to settle back for some very cool lunar observing. Tomorrow night will be the Terminator, which which divides the night from day, uh, is moving relatively fast between sunset and moonset. And you might be able to detect its motion if you come back to the moon, you know, a couple different times. Several of the moon's large seas, so to speak. I guess we'll have to put that in quotes or on display if you're in the northern hemisphere. You can see Frigoris, Serenitatis, Tranquillitatis, Nectaris, Crisium, and Fengutitatis, uh, which is a very large crater, as a matter of fact. Uh, Fecunditatis uh, is about 130 kilometers across. Yeah, it's about 80, 80 miles or so. Not a perfect circle, but... but uh, Looks kind of oblong here from, from, from the Earth if you're observing with a scope or some good, some good binoculars. All right, um, Wednesday. Already uh, at sunset, Cygnus, the swan, will be a good target for your observation on Wednesday night. This uh, constellation has... Uh, a number of components uh, from the binary star system called Cygnus X1. And there's a great Rush song from the album Hemispheres, I believe, called Cygnus X1. Maybe that's the wrong album. 
Anyway, correct me if I'm wrong, but anyway, there's a great Rush song, the band Rush from Canada, called Cygnus X1 from back in the 70s. But that's a black hole, Cygnus X1 is. And although the black hole is not visible, its companion star, which is a big white giant, uh, which is designated HDE226868, by the way, um, is an eighth magnitude star that is just a little bit east of Eta Cygni, and that's detectable with binoculars and even easy, uh, more easily with a telescope. Anyway, this uh, companion star to the Cygnus X1 black hole orbits uh, every 5.6 days from our perspective. It's flying around this uh, massive object's massive uh, you know, gravitational pull. And... Many astronomers suspect that because the pair are so close that the black hole is actively feeding on that star as well, pulling material off the star and onto the disk of material that eventually will swirl into the black hole like water sort of flowing down a drain. So you can observe at least part of that system on Wednesday night. It'll be right above your heads. Uh, Sunrise at 622. Sunset at 7.40, got the moon rising pretty early, about 3.06 in the afternoon, 3.06 p.m. Quickly here on Thursday, got a wonderful opposition coming up on October 13th, uh, but we're now uh, starting to move into uh, a good season uh, for observing the red planet Mars. And coming up for the next, well, Starting on Thursday, at least, you can check it out. The best time to observe might be a few hours before sunrise when the red planet is well above the southern horizon, shining at a bright magnitude of about negative 1.7. I say it often enough, but the lower the magnitude, the brighter the object. Uh, Because of the angle, the disk is currently about 90% lit, so you've got a very, very prominent object up there in the south skies and by the end of the month it'll be even larger at least appear so summertime is here and as that happens uh, in the southern hemisphere of the red planet if you observe the planet with a telescope you can see the southern polar cap of mars because it's tilted toward our planet and it's relatively small but it's bright, and uh, that large basin they call the Hellas Basin is often, uh, or I should say there is a bright uh, basin there called the Hellas Basin, which is sometimes confused for the polar cap. Um, but if you come back on Friday, you'll be able to see both of those different features and be able to tell the difference between the two. Um, the moon rises at about 4.10 on, on, uh, on Thursday. All right, we are going to now switch gears and get to what I think is probably the most important uh, thing that I'm going to do tonight. It is a heart-wrenching uh, presentation or, uh, I guess, uh, pouring out of... Well, facts and emotion from a filmmaker 
a Hollywood filmmaker who's been involved in all kinds of very interesting things. Um, his name is John Paul Rice, and he was uh, performing by the age of seven. He went to Georgia State University. He uh, has worked in film since around 2001 as an adult. Uh, he was involved with The Hunger Games, uh, Juno, The Grudge, Harold and Kumar, uh, Remember the Titans. And um, anyway, he eventually became interested in developing independent feature films. And he was heavily involved in the production of a film that was called A Child's Voice. And in fact, it is called A Child's Voice. And um, in this YouTube piece, and I recorded it because I don't know how long it's going to be up there. It's been up there for about a week or so, but uh, producer John Paul Rice of the feature film A Child's Voice. I'm not going to say any more about it. I'm going to let him explain yourself. Maybe we can talk a little bit about it afterwards. All right, it's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. And uh, this is John Paul Rice, in his own words. My name is John Paul Rice. For the people watching that may not know who I am, my friends know me. I'm an independent film producer. I've been in Hollywood for about 20 years. I started my film career in Remember the Titans. Uh, worked at Senator International, later Mandate Pictures, under the producers who did Juno, The Grudge, Harold and Kumar, Stranger Than Fiction, and uh, eventually The Hunger Games when they went back into Lionsgate. Uh, the reason I wanted to talk to everybody here today is because uh, over the last course of the last week or two, we have found out uh, without notification that Amazon.com, for which we have six of our movies on there, our film, A Child's Voice, which has been on there for over a year and a half in the UK, the United States, and now 70 other countries, was suddenly, without notification, removed entirely from their platform. They unpublished it, and they made it not searchable in most of the sites. We've only tested a few outside of the United States, but the one in the United States, if you put in A Child's Voice in Amazon.com, you can't find it on the 1,100 pages that they'll give you back on your searches. The only way that you can get it is through a direct link, and we discovered this because the director's daughter had sent the links out to several of her friends when the Wayfair scandal broke, as well as the Maxwell files being released in the last 48 hours. And Amazon came back to us. They gave us a very standard corporate, non-committal response that said, we make a lot of changes. We do this and that and the other. We judge things based on performance. But they couldn't give us a very specific answer. And we all know what the answer is. What our movie did before Epstein was known about in the public and before Maxwell was known about in the public is we found a network of pedophiles among a global network of people who were selling kids back and forth to each other, trading them like candy. It goes right in through Hollywood. If you look at the Daily Beast article, you'll see that Jeffrey Epstein had a pipeline right into Hollywood through Harvey Weinstein. That was last year. I've done a lot of deep dives and research into this, and there is a very satanic element to it for which we incorporated it into our movie. Our movie is a feature film. It deals 
with two teens, one who's a homeless heroin addicted teen, hears the voice of a child who had been killed at the beginning of the movie, calls out for his help, and he goes on a mission to rescue a girl from these human traffickers. They come together and then they stand up to this network in a spirit of love and courage for all of these children. It's a very beautiful film. It's been well-reviewed, well-received, critically acclaimed by the people that have reviewed it, and also many users by the thousands, by the tens of thousands, by the millions all over the world have seen this. So when we had all of this come up, we went viral with it on Twitter the other day, and it exploded because we still have one platform left here in the United States, and that's Vimeo.com On Demand. What I would like everybody to do is more importantly, I don't need to get back on Amazon. I already know what they're going to do, and they've got a stack of lawyers. But we're looking for alternative platforms where we can release this movie and get it out to as many people as possible. Our movie is not a documentary. It's a feature film. And we did this based on all the evidence and the facts that we had learned and incorporated into a story that you get involved through the character's journey. Their road to redemption is through love. And... This issue of human trafficking, which many people are waking up to today for a variety of reasons, is the issue that defines all of us in our time. The media corporations, the most powerful six corporations in the land, in the world for that matter, are all implicated in human trafficking of kids. And I would point to anybody who wants to know more about that to look at Project Veritas and the, and the leak disclosure of off-air footage of Amy Robach from ABC News when she found out and was discussing in 2016 that they had everything from Virginia Guffrey, all of it. Everybody who was involved, they had all the evidence. Their own lawyer said that when all is said and done, Jeffrey Epstein will go down as one of the most prolific pedophiles in all of history, and they buried that story to have access to the royal family, for which we now know Prince Andrew was implicated. They did not have any remorse for the victims in that video. This is a bigger problem because most people know in that world and the world that I come from in Hollywood that it is a hidden layer that everybody knows is there. When the Me Too movement started in 2017, I reached out to several of my female actress friends who were prominent in LA. You would know them by name. Many of them you would know by just their look because you go, oh, that was her in that movie or that movie. And I said, well, what about the children? What about the children? And, they, and the response was, we know, we know. But they were silent on it. And it destroyed me because it destroyed my illusion of what rights, human rights were, children's rights were. This is a child abuse system that we have been living in for a very long time, and it's been allowed to go on. And I will not be silent about this because it affects every single one of us. The people on television who smile at you, who tell you stories, who give you news, are the ones who hide all of this from us. They are not talking about the real issues. They are distracting you with division issues. This is a unification issue. When the Maxwell Files came out 48 hours ago, I went on MSNBC, I went on CNN.com, and I looked at every single one of their headlines, and there was no mention of it whatsoever. They were talking about John Lewis's funeral. They were talking about Obama versus Trump. All of the bullshit that you and I hear every single day. 
And it doesn't matter what side of the political equation you're on on this. This is a child issue. This is a human issue. This is not a political issue. It has nothing to do with left versus right, Democrat versus Republican, liberal versus conservative, or anything you are or you identify with as in between. We are faced with a crisis of consciousness among the leadership of our banking institutions, of our media corporations, of the Hollywood entertainment industry, of the music industry. This is not about a bunch of young women who were having sex with older men and make it about a bunch of perverts. They raped and tortured these girls against their own free will. No matter whether they paid them or not, if you read the articles and you listen to what Ghislaine Maxwell said about the girls that she picked up in West Palm Beach's trailer parks, she was asked, what about the young girls? What are we going to do to them? What, what's going to happen to them? She said, they are trash. They are nothing. That's a direct quote from The New Yorker. When I went and looked at edge.org, which you can find out was a multi-billionaire club of people, that was financed by Jeffrey Epstein. You can go to edge.org today, look up under people and go to G. You'll see Bill Gates on there as a contributing member of that organization. And you'd have to go back in the Wayback Machine and Internet Archives to look at all the other people. Jeffrey Epstein was right on there. Marina Averovich is on there. Paul Allen was on there. All the heads of major industries were on there. And if you start reading some of the articles, one of which I have a direct link to, that I will share with anybody who DMs me. There is a direct quote on there that said, indeed, human beings are, in our youngest years, use the most, among the most useless creatures in all of the animal kingdom. This is how they view children, through science. This is their expression. These are people who have no ground to tell you what to think what to do. So when they get up there and they start espousing their views on social justice or whatever the hell it is, know that you're hearing a controlled and scripted dialogue that is going through a filter by people who are very powerful, who hold a lot of money, and they are controlling and conditioning all of these people through pedophilia. And there's another layer to it, but it's too unbelievable to believe that they would also sacrifice kids. And I'll give you one statistic that you can look up and verify for yourself. If you go to UNICEF and you look up child sex trafficking or human trafficking, you'll find a statistic globally, worldwide, according to the United Nations, that 40 million people a year are trafficked around this world. 40 million, it's a $150 billion a year industry for which has very dark and ugly ties. And it goes all the way up into Wall Street and beyond. But I will say this, 5.5 million children every year are trafficked around the world. 5.5 million, most of whom don't live past age seven or eight, which means they have to replenish that supply chain. They harvest organs of children on a black market. In China right now, there are concentration camps for young Muslims to the tune of one million people. Nobody's talking about this as modern day slavery. 
They are beating these people, they are re-indoctrinating them, and they are raping their wives to start a new bloodline. That's happening right now in China. You can find that on the Washington Post or the New York Times. Nobody else is saying anything about it in our politics, in our mainstream news. Nobody's talking about it. It is slavery of human beings is going on today, and it must stop, and it is a child abuse issue. All of these kids that were preyed upon, many of them came from bad homes. That's not their fault. But these predators, they come after our children because they can offer them things. They can offer them alcohol. They can offer them money. They can offer them drugs to lure them in. And suddenly, as you will find out if you read the Maxwell testimony, you'll find that what they were doing is they were saying, they asked G. Lay Maxwell, well, did you ever talk to her about money that she could earn about giving a hand job or sexual favors to Epstein. And she went through this long explanation. Well, we discussed career advice and I advised her and possibly, you know, told her that where she could advance her career. That's as far as she would go. And then her lawyer cut her off. These people don't give a shit about anybody and they get up there and they smile in front of you and they are in, infiltrated throughout all of our institutions, including government. They own the politicians, right and left. What we are going to find out very soon is that there aren't Democrats and Republicans in the United States government. There's a unified cabal of controlled people who serve these powers and they keep the theater going for you and I to run back and forth and vote every four years. I have watched horror story after horror story, and I promise you this is true. Go on YouTube and find Anake Lucas, who was a child sex slave at six years old for the elite. And she will describe to you, she also gave a TED talk on this, but this was in 2016. She talked about the block of wood that she saw with the stains of blood of children on it. The predators are not just raping and having sex and torturing and beating these kids. They're murdering them for pleasure. This is not a pedophile. These are psychopaths. And they have no remorse whatsoever in what they're doing. What we need to do in this world is unify together to protect all life on this planet and the sacredness of children. Because if we are going to make it through this time with all the upheavals that are going to come, socioeconomic, racial, however you want to measure it, this is the unifying issue that the establishment will not give you a movement for. You're going to have to do it on your own. They will give you the Me Too movement because they can make it about hatred of men and weaponize it and make it political. They'll give you the Black Lives Matter movement because they can weaponize it and make it political. They can have Colin Kaepernick take a knee, divide the country, and he walks away with a check from Nike at a multi-tens of millions of dollars NFL star level deal. While Nike has concentration camp, slave labor camp workers Working in China at their factories, also our kids can have their Air Jordans. And Colin Kaepernick says nothing about that. Where are our Martin Luther King Juniors and our Malcolm X's? They're in celebrity culture. 
All of these people who get up and say that we live in an oppressive system are taking checks from white men who are paying them. And why I'm saying this is I'm so angry because it all ties into this abuse of human rights. We have to stop fighting each other and unite for this country and this world for our children. I don't care that Amazon took my movie down. In fact, it tells me that we're doing better than ever before and that this issue is spreading all over. 80 million impressions last month alone on TikTok for Pizzagate, for which if anybody looks into it, I tell them, go look at the New York Times coverage in 2016 and look at how they covered it, and then go look at James Alephantis's Instagram images. They completely omitted them. This is the family restaurant owner who is posting pictures of children in compromising positions and all of the friends that James Alephantis has was talking about how delicious those kids looked. Would you send your child and walk into a restaurant for which the owner is publicly doing those kinds of things on social media in a public forum? Look at Pedogate 2020. Watch Out of Shadows to get an idea of how disgusting these people are. And they have the gall to call you a right-winger or a conspiracy theorist or a white supremacist or a neo-Nazi. They'll do it to everybody. Doesn't matter whether you're a Democrat or Republican. They'll do it to everybody. I've been called every name in the book. And I'm telling you this. I woke up because I listened to what other people were saying and I waited and I sought out the truth for myself. I didn't wait for the mainstream media to tell me. Every single time there is a disclosure in Hollywood, all of these kids, I worked there for 20 years, I saw shit that nobody should see. I didn't partake in things, it was just right in front of me, out in the open. These kids, when you see Britney Spears, when you see Amanda Bynes, when you see any of these young pop stars have meltdowns, that's not because they're famous. That's not because of the pressures of stardom and the money getting to them. It's because they're sexually abused and handed around like candy. You go on crazy days and nights, you can go to Tracy Bean's channel and look up that video which she did at the end of 2019. It'll blow your mind. They have a pipeline of kids going from Haiti all the way to the Vatican on boats. And there are people in Hollywood who facilitate all this, stars who will go and date rich men. You can look up this. These stories are in the press. They're not, they're hidden like they're, they're traveling and they're going over here. They're hanging out with billionaire men in the Middle East. It has nothing to do with the fact that they're Muslim. It's not even that they're Muslim. These are kings. These are princes. These are uh, heads of state, dignitaries, billionaire moguls, all hanging around Khan. And it's legitimate. It's completely legitimate. They call it yachting. And that's just the dating part of it and having sex for money, which they throw hundreds of thousands of dollars at some of these girls, depending on how long they'll stay with them and accompany them to dinners and have sex with them and do whatever they want in their orgies or whatever sexual perversions they have. This has been going on for decades, forever. Hollywood is just the most publicly visible because it's out in our faces, it's on our airways, it's on our TV all the time, it's in our music industry. You would not believe the level of satanic crap that is in there. And if you had told me this three years ago, I would have said, you're crazy. I thought, you know, that's a little, that's too far. No, 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 no. 
this satanic shit that is going on in our music industry and in Hollywood too, but mostly in the music industry, is so out there. Once you look at it and you see the occult symbolism, they use it in everything. Baphomet is everywhere. Pentagram is all over the place. And they sew it into the, to the consciousness of these young kids through witchcraft and all sorts of fun stuff. They make it fun. They make it sound fun. And it's sexy. But I'll give you this, just on the practical level. You look at every pop star over the last 20 years, and especially in the last 10, Ariana Grande, Miley Cyrus, where do they start? Innocence. Miley Cyrus is Hannah Montana. Innocence. She came out with a music video last year. For what? Where she had claws and teeth on her vagina. They promote diversity, tolerance, all of this to confuse people and they don't even see it. Ariana Grande, unfortunately, I feel very bad for these kids because they're children and they have to do horrific things. Kaya Jones, who I know personally, was a former member of the Pussycat Dolls. And she gave her testimony in 2017, right after the Las Vegas shooting, because she was there. And she started talking as, as far as she could go about what these kids go through. And her moment of clarity was she saw what everybody else around her in the group was starting to do. Sex was nothing. But then taking advantage of people and having no remorse for it, she saw another level to it. And it was the moment she was at the MGM Grand standing up there singing and these young girls looking up and idolizing these women. You're the pussycat dolls. I want to be like you. She couldn't do it anymore and she walked away. We can have truthful art in this world. We don't need propaganda. Truthful art begins with the diversity of ideas and truthful information being disclosed. We can have beautiful films we can have honest expressions in it that come from within us. The journey of art is to discover what is within you that is the unknown, which you follow a belief to find. But in that discovery, there is the transcendent, which is what did I struggle with and come to confront within myself that I needed to release and share and let you decide what is real, what is true for you in that honest expression. But the other stuff, which is I'm gonna tell you what you should think, and these are the bad people, and these are the good people, and this is what you need to think, and this is what you need to do, and everybody just gets all excited about that. That is the same stuff that we've been doing for so very long. And Hollywood, I will tell you this, if you look back why there's reboots, remakes, prequels, and sequels, I've discussed this with many of my writer friends in Hollywood who were deeply embedded trying to help get the truth out through the disclosure in their movies. They all told me what the gatekeepers all know at the very, very top, not the executives, not the agents, not the managers. It's, it's like a banking institution. The person at the teller working with the customer does not have privy to the knowledge of the CEO and the chairman of the board and what they discussed the day before. They're just doing their job, right? 
So everybody does their job according to what they know. So Hollywood gets this, the word out through the studios, this is the kind of content we're looking for. But the gatekeepers at the very top are managers to make sure that we don't wake up. They control everything that we see, and it is very important for them to do that because they don't need you and I starting to have new ideas about things that go outside of the orthodoxy of what they want us to know. So the reboots, remakes, prequels, and sequels is like a holding pattern so that we keep retreading through the same ideas, even though as humans, our minds are to expand, to grow, to stretch, to reach out. And we're in a time where we're trapped between everything that we're supposed to do. There's so much cognitive dissonance. It's a reflection of this whole system which preys on children. That is the number one Achilles heel of this entire time. These people don't want you to know that. They want you to think that we're the problem instead of the one-tenth of one percent who control everything and have the gall to turn around and message to all of us and tell us that we're the problem or white people are the problem or black people are the problem or brown people are the problem. I live here out away from the city now and I'm in a town that is 50-50 black and white, roughly. We had a Black Lives Matter protest about a month and a half ago, good-sized crowd. We had white and black cops there standing while they protest peacefully, serving food to everyone, including the cops, next to a Confederate statue. Nobody was pulling it down, nobody was yelling, nobody was arguing. Everybody was getting along. Across the street, we had restaurants filled to the brim with people having fun, children and parents outside eating ice cream together, no masks. And everybody was fine. This division that they're stirring up, I'm telling you this because you need to understand, they're going to do everything they can to tear this country apart at the seams. And they're gonna throw everything they have at it to keep this truth from coming up. You all have to do your own work as you want to. Support the things that mean the most to you. If this human trafficking issue moves you and stirs you in such a way that you wish to do something about it, get involved locally. Your sheriff, Your sheriff in your local town, that is the number one place to start because that's the person that enforces the law locally. Your local representatives and officials need to not only become aware of it, but make it a priority that it doesn't come into your neighborhood. And ultimately what we need to do is go within. Because this, I said earlier, is not a political issue and it's not a corporate issue, it's a human issue. It's a heart-led movement of love. That's what gives us courage to stand up in the face of such horrors. I know that from my own experience because I went through my own discovery of my abuse and had to come to terms with it. But more importantly, to heal from it was the healing within that gave me the power and the strength to forgive my father and mother, not falsely and move on from it, but love them because I saw that my suffering was their suffering and their suffering was my suffering. 
and I could care for them unconditionally in spite of all that I had endured because I realized that what comes about evil in the world is through darkness, which is unconsciousness, unaware of what they were doing with their best intentions. But let me say the opposite of this. The flip side of that equation is that every single child born in this world is born with love in their heart. Every single one of them. You may want to pick off one or 2%, fine. I'm going to give that to you. 99 to 98% of all children, seven and a half to 7.8 billion of us on this planet are born hardwired to love those two people that are supposed to be good to us. And what happens when you damage a child, when you hurt that child, when you humiliate that child, when you put that child second to your own needs, when you beat that child, when you spank that child, put fear in that child's heart and mind, that child will still love you no matter what because it can't conceive of the two people that were supposed to love them ever to do something that would hurt them and they will blame themselves and they will grow up with that all their life. The frequency and the consistency of that could make it worse. And if there's no adult around that they can trust, they can grow up to become a pedophile if they were sexually abused. That's what happens. There are some that are sexually abused that don't get that, but they had an outlet somewhere. Someone cared for them enough along the way that loved them enough to rescue them and save them and give them love and care. These are the kind of conversations that we need to start having in our own homes, in our own hearts. Because if we're ever to change this time, to never return to a time where our leaders that we elect, people who get appointed to boards and the heads of industries do this shit to children, this is our consciousness doing this, unaware. These people prey upon abused children because they can offer them something that they don't have at home. It's the same thing with gangs. They don't have a family that loves them. So they go and make their own family somewhere else among a group that is just like them. That's their identification. All of us are seeking love with a veil over us if we were damaged as kids. And we find it in different ways. We find it with our partners. We find it around the people that abuse us. We want to be loved. Every child is born with that love inside of them. It gives them the power to carry on and not kill themselves. But when you damage it to such a point and destroy it, you're going to get terrible outcomes. You're going to get people who beat each other. You're going to get people who bloody each other. You're going to get people who murder each other because they're so angry. And I don't think for a moment that we are prepared to deal with that on a mass scale. This, this child sex trafficking issue is something that we're going to learn many, many things about over the next several months into years from now. And it's going to horrify a lot of people. It's going to traumatize a lot of people because there's unconscious traumas that are going on inside of each and every one of us at different times and at different levels. This is not a judgment about you or anybody else. 
because you know you better than anybody else. But I'm going to tell you there's a couple of things that need to go out there and need to be known. Number one, learn about Alice Miller and her work. Drama of the Gifted Child, For Your Own Good, The Body Never Lies. Those three books right there are paramount to understanding the lingering effects of harmful parenting. And we're not just talking about mom saying a bad word to us. I'm talking about systemic abuse that is in the home, that is carried within us for a very long time, and we tell ourselves a story that my mom and dad did the best they could. Half of that is true, because if they had known what they were doing to you at the time, they would have stopped, I hope. The second thing is to learn EFT, Emotion Freedom Technique. It was developed by Carl Dawson, and it has now been integrated into matrix re-imprinting. You can go on YouTube and look up the videos there. This is something you can do yourself. There's also a technique called Havening by Paul McKenna. These are all on YouTube, but EFT and matrix re-imprinting by Carl Dawson, and there's many, many practitioners out there now. And what this thing is, and I've done it myself, is it takes the emotions of the past and the thought associated with them, the anger, the rage, the depression, the sadness, which we often bury or get busy with doing something else, and it breaks the connection permanently. This is a technique that has cured people with PTSD for over 20 years, manic depression, in 60 seconds has been cured permanently where people have been on every single drug. And there's endless testimonies to this and there's practices of live demonstrations of this being done on people. It is a beautiful thing. And it is the thing that we need to begin to change our brains, to change the way we think and to open our minds to a loving heart that each and every one of us is born with because we have a battle ahead we are going to have a lot of human carnage that we don't see yet having manifested because of the horrors that have been sown into society and our children who are being summoned by this energy, this negative energy, this anger. And they are going to be pulled away from themselves even further and given a righteousness to act in the name of violence against their fellow human beings. I cannot tell you the depths of how far this goes. I can only point you in one direction. If you look up Ronald Bernard and his testimony in the International Tribunal of Justice in 2018, it's about a 33 minute video. It will tell you the entire time that we're living through right now. And it is very important. And there is a message of love and hope in there that he gives you. And I have met this man through the internet and I've been talking with him over the years and he is writing a tell-all book that he's gonna be out with in about six months from now. But he is as courageous as anybody that I've ever known. And he went through his own suffering and he went all the way up through the power structure, through the banks at the very top, the tippy top, and saw what was going on behind the scenes. And he was horrified and it broke him to pieces. So just know this, your love and your care for yourself 
and the people that love you back. Most importantly, every single child that you come across, every single one of them, even not your own, that you give an act of love to is like a deposit of gold in the bank for their future. You don't know what trajectories you are turning them away from by giving them that little smile, that little beauty, that little extra affection. It's, it is magical to watch a kid pop up the moment you give them attention. Very rarely as adults do we do that because we're so busy and we've got so many filters, but children are open. They're very, very open and they're extremely programmable. The first seven years of their life, they are 100% programmable in a delta and theta brainwave state. And that means that everything that you speak to them, they take it in. They absorb it into their subconscious mind. The energy, the frequency, and the vibration. So if you put negative energy out there, they're going to absorb that in. And that becomes part of their personality and their habits that they will develop over time. We have to start learning. We cannot be caught in this division anymore. The people that are doing the division know very well how to make you angry. And you have to say that's about enough. And when you do, and when this world comes together against these monsters, they will have no more power because the only weapon that they have is fear. That's how they get to these kids. They give them fear and they put fear into them and they keep them controlled through fear. And they do exactly that with you through the television, through the media, through your politicians, through all the institutions to cause you despair and anger and negativity where you argue amongst each other. I worked in the banking industry for 14 years in the bank of the stars, the one-tenth of one percent that catered to Hollywood. And I can tell you very clearly, these people have gotten away with next to murder. So that's all I wanted to say, Amazon, Band our film, I don't care. I want you to know that it's on Vimeo.com, on demand. You can go to our website, No Restrictions Entertainment. You can find the movie there, rent it. And here's the thing. If you see this movie and it moves you, send it to everyone you know. And I don't even mind at all that you share your account with other people so that they don't have to pay for it. I'm that adamant about this issue. I've studied it so intensely and I don't recommend people doing that unless you have the strength to endure it because you'll have many sleepless nights. But I'm gonna tell you this, our love for our kids is greater than all the horrors that these people have ever done in the history of the world. And they know that and they know what we are. They know that we come from a creator of heaven and earth. That is not a religious belief. That is why they do what they do to kids because it's the closest thing to God that we have on the face of this earth. And our love for our kids is unbelievably powerful. Unbelievable, the energy that that sends out into the world. And our love and care for each other is unbelievably powerful, more than their fear. They have to get you to consent and believe in them to make the whole thing work. So with that said, thank you all for listening and tuning in. Please share this video everywhere. I love you all. A Child's Voice on Vimeo, No Restrictions Entertainment, Save the Children, End Human Trafficking, and Love Will Win. All right. 
That's producer John Paul Rice with some pretty powerful words about human trafficking and child abuse and the combination of those things as well. And I agree completely with, with pretty much everything that he said for those last 38 minutes. I believe that the divisiveness that is peddled by the media on all sides uh, is meant to distract and keep us away from these issues, this issue that is a unifying issue. The fact of human trafficking, the fact that there are large-scale, organized, elite, pedophile gangs that occupy positions of power in industry, banking, government, education, you name it. And they, they operate with impunity. The Jeffrey Epstein story, it was the biggest story of 2019. COVID now has taken the place of that, of course. Uh, but even so, in the political discourse, this conversation about trafficking and children and with, of course, the Jeffrey Epstein story and Jelaine Maxwell story right at the center of it. And like Mr. Rice pointed out, the importance of the Jelaine Maxwell testimony and the significance of it, uh, not to mention what we knew before then. I mean, all you have to do is do a web search for Lolita Express and uh, search for the uh, the passenger list. And you'll see who was flying around with Jeffrey Epstein to his disgusting island. And it wasn't the only one. There's more than one island, and there's, there's other ones that are still operational, certainly. Uh, but anyway, this is the story. And this is something that should be unifying people uh, because it's more important than anything else. And I think that everyone would agree, at least those who, you don't even have to have children. You just have to have a heart, you know, and a respect and appreciation for human life. Regardless of race, religion, skin color, ideology, etc. And so these are the central issues and I challenge all of the people out there and the politicians and the media to address these issues and try to do some unification because it's something that we can all unify around the end to ritual abuse human trafficking and the rape of children and anybody else these are the central issues and they are nowhere to be found in the, in the social discourse. And this guy, John Paul Rice, has got balls like church bells. You know, I give, I give him just a tremendous amount of credit. So um, 
yeah, that's all I got to say for for tonight. Come on back next week, and uh, we'll we'll do something else. It's Mike. You've been listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia 89.5 FM on the web at Mike Hagan, M-I-K-E-H-A-G-A-N, MikeHagan.com. Um, you can email me, Mike Hagan at MikeHagan.com if you have anything you'd like to share, uh, art, poetry, music, advice, whatever. I'd be glad to check it out, okay? Uh, stick around. Eric P. Sound Legacy coming at you in about an hour. So get ready for some cool music action in a little bit. Keep it locked here. KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. I'll be back next week. I hope you'll join me then and uh, share uh, this movie, A Child's Voice. I've got a link to it up on my on my forum. It's a wonderful movie. It's a, you know, it's a feature film and it's very well done. And uh, this gentleman who we just heard from, John Paul Rice, is the producer of that movie. Anyway, that's all for now. I'll catch y'all later. We're going to hear one more from uh, from the Mighty Pines. And this one is called Thinking About You. Cheers, everyone. Be cool to yourself. And be cool to other people. I'll catch y'all next week. I've been thinking about you. I've been thinking about you I've been thinking about you Baby, I've been thinking about you We spoke only a few words Then I watched you With your band And it was wonderful And you sang with fire That I admire Honey, I was filled with desire Baby, take me higher Cause I've been thinking about you Baby, I've been thinking about you Yeah And I wrote A song